0: So, happiness. It was the theologian Karl Barth who once quipped and said, You know, we should read with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. The inference being, don't let scriptures get too far away from what is going on in life and the world around us. So, this quote came to my mind this past week when I came across an article in the Washington Post with a very long title that read this way. Americans are the unhappiest they have ever been. And then it added a whole other piece to this. And it cited a report released by the United Nations on all days, uh, United Nations International Day of Happiness. There is such a day. It was this past week. So you may have missed it. I'm sorry. If you want to have it this next week, you can. But here's what they reported. According to this report by the United Nations Initiative titled The Sustainable Development Solutions Network for the third year in a row, The United States has dropped in its happiness ranking. And we now sit at number 19 out of 156 countries with Finland, Norway, and Denmark at the top of the list. I have watched uh, cop shows from Norway, Finland, and Denmark. They are dark and gray, so if they're at the top of the list and we're 19, then I'm concerned about that. And apparently since the inception of the report the U.S. has never cracked the top ten and this is our worst ranking since 2012. Now you can do what you want with rankings and certainly the data could be argued. But the point is this report comes out and says according to what we see and hear and interview sometimes we're not a very happy country. It lists a few contributing factors. An epidemic of addictions in the United States which causes unhappiness and depression, in fact the report went as far as to say that the United States is a "quote" mass addiction society. Now with that I will agree with them. And then it goes on to say social media and electronics. By 2017 the average 17 or 18 year old spent more than 6 hours a day of leisure time on the internet, social media and texting. Activities linked to the increase of depression and less face-to-face time with friends and family. I just want to back up there, 17- and 18-year-olds, because I want to give you a break on that, because I don't think it's just 17- and 18-year-olds. It's like everybody hitting on millennials lately and saying you know, how, quote, how lazy they are. I don't think that's the case. I think millennials and 17- and 18-year-olds get a lot of a bad rap for stuff we do as well. Maybe we don't do it six hours a day, but we do it enough, when I say we, adults, that we have the same effect. And then it talks about the inability of positive economic growth, well-being to create this climate of happiness. We either are worried about how to maintain this growth, we're either worried about how to keep it up to get more, or we build our image around it and our well-being around it. Now, it's probably not a coincidence that uh, news correspondent and medical doctor Sanjay Gupta is anchoring his first film this Monday on HBO entitled One Nation Under Stress. And the thing that caught my ear on this interview with him is he says how stress is literally killing folks and shortening life expectancy, all under a category they now call the death of despair, as folks shorten their lives due to opioid, drug overdoses, alcoholism, and suicide. Now that paints a pretty bleak picture, and I apologize, that's probably not the best way to start out a sermon on happiness. But this is what gave rise to this. This is what sort of caught my attention. This is what caught my awareness. And I'm struggling with this, I've got the news in one hand, I've got the scriptures in the other, what do we do with this? Because it seems as if we have a happiness deficit. And it's affecting us physically, mentally, emotionally, and I'm sure even spiritually. So what I started out with first is I asked myself some questions. And I want to warn you ahead of time this morning, I may end up with more questions than I do answers. I don't know if I actually have a how to make you happy or how you can be happy because part of it is what I'm exploring is what does it mean to live the spiritual journey and what does happiness look like within that context? Because the Bible uses happiness interchangeably with joy, It uses it interchangeably with gladness, but the Scripture does mention the word happy. So if it's there and in there, let's wrestle with it, and what does it say? So here's some of the questions I had. Is happiness merely a superficial emotion based on external circumstances? Or can it be as much a fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives like patience or joy? And for that matter, is there a difference between happiness and joy? I'd love to hear your comments on that sometime. Second, is it right to feel happy? Now this is what gets me. Is it right to feel happy when there is seemingly so much pain and struggle in our world? No one can feel more guilty about being happy than Scott Wagner. Because I can be happy that, well, you know, there's this over here and there's this over here and they're struggling with this. So should I feel guilty about being happy? Yes, I do overthink things by the way. I get told that a lot, so Third, what can I do to nurture and cultivate happiness in my own life? And then the last question is, can our happiness add something to our world? If I looked at that at the opposite way, does my unhappiness take away something from this world? And not just from this world, but the people I live with, the people I'm around, the people that are around me. So those are the questions that I wrestled with, and I still wrestle with them. And then I began to look at, okay, so what gets in the way of happiness? If these are the questions, what do I find gets in the way of happiness? And here are some of the things I reflected on. Because I believe that happiness is an inside job. I do believe that. It it begins inwardly, and it works its way out and shows up on how we live and treat one another and the kind of presence we bring to our world. But there are barriers, I find, to it. So here's what I came up with. The first is this conflict. To me, that felt rather obvious one of the barriers to happiness or joy, if you will, we'll use that interchangeably, is conflict, relational conflicts with family and with friends. Those unresolved issues that drain our soul uh, with coworkers, we just don't know how to deal with it. We haven't worked through it. It just stews and stews and stews. The next thing we know, it just is this like low level fu- uh, flu that just drains us of energy and there's no energy for anything else. Sometimes there's internal conflicts within ourselves over who we feel we truly are and what we project to the world. We, we want to be this, we want to say with this but we end up doing this and we're conflicted about giving our true self. And I think that makes us unhappy sometimes. Who am I? Am I my true self? Why do I sometimes pretend? Then I thought about concerns. We carry concerns about our family, our friends, our own life and health. We carry concerns about the world. But again, that's what I wrestle with is How can I be concerned about what's going on in the world with hunger and and poverty and and, and war? And this Tuesday coming up I'm having lunch with Jim Summy here in High Point um, who deals with the High Point community against violence because I have been so concerned about the level of violence that we are seeing within our own community and he is one of the point people to address that. I want to know what we can do and what I can do to be in conversation around that. So then I think, should that be a day that I'm not happy? Can we laugh at lunch? We carry those concerns and sometimes those concerns overwhelm us so much. I remember when I was in college I began to feel very concerned. This was late 70s, early 80s. I was very concerned about nuclear buildup as a, as a Quaker. And so I actually began to compile um, Uh, uh, statistics and I began to do talks on it and I went around to churches and back in the day when you had overhead projectors I made the the overhead slides and I would put those on here and I'd give them statistics and where the world was headed. I finally had to stop because I was having such bad nightmares. Of all the statistics and scenes that I was telling people I was having at night as I slept and I would just wake up in the middle of the night and I just couldn't get back to sleep again and I thought I can't do this anymore. So concerns sometimes uh, are a barrier to happiness. Uh, One other piece that I mentioned is corrosion and what I mean by that is our hearts and souls get corroded by anger, by cynicism. We allow toxic emotions to eat away at our souls until all of the joy begins to leak out. And I think we do that sometimes. We get our, our hearts and souls just get corroded by all of that we keep in and we and, and it, it just stays in there. And we spray it out and we, we offer it out into the world, but we're anger, we're, we're angry, we're cynical, we're sarcastic and, and, and it just corrodes everything about us. But then the last thing I thought about was this seems to be a key of a lot of people's unhappiness is comparison. The constant comparing our lives with others. And this is where social media does not serve us well. We get on Facebook and we compare our kids. We get on Facebook, we compare our jobs. We compare our marriages. We compare our vacations. We compare everything and we look at pictures and we look at what people are doing and we think to ourselves, why can't I do that? Why am I doing that? Why why didn't my kids turn out this way? Why isn't my marriage this way? And we just compare, we compare, and we compare. The next thing you know, for the hour we spent on there, we have about another eight hours of unhappiness. Because we have literally compared our life with somebody else and it becomes this contentment buster. And we may have started out with this is a great day, it's a wonderful gift, and by the end of the day we're so upset that we think our life is going nowhere because we have compared it. Now here's the secret. Half of what people post on that is probably not the full story anyway. It's because they're scared as well, and they're comparing as well. We're only really giving our best self, our best front, if you will. So it's a real danger, it's a real trap. So you may have other barriers that bust your happiness, I don't know but I found there are those. So then I went to the Scriptures and I followed Karl Barth's suggestion. Reading the Scripture with the newspaper in one hand and then reading this this, this passage from Psalm 84 and not being shy about using the word happiness, this is what I reflected on I want to offer you. First is this, Our happiness is connected with our awareness of God's presence in our life and that sense of being home in God's presence. And this is what Psalm 84 talks about is that God is with us. God is all around us and we are at home. God is here with us in this universe and to be with God is like being at home in this place with God. Dallas Willard, a writer and author who's passed away, said this one time Our world is a very safe place to be. Now you think this guy's crazy, but that's what he believed. He believed so much in the presence of God in this world that he literally said this is a very safe world to be. Regardless of how it looks and feels, it remains a very safe world. And for that he lived a life of quiet joy, of quiet contentment and quiet happiness because he believed so much in that. I think our happiness is connected with the willingness to offer gratitude, thankfulness, and praise, which is a form of thanksgiving to God. This is what the psalmist writes, that as he gives praise to God there is a sense of joy and happiness that strengthens him. And I I think giving expressions of gratitude, looking for things that we can be grateful for, finding things that we can be grateful for, and just resting in that as God's gifts is a way that it nurtures and cultivates joy, blessing, gladness and happiness in our life. I'm not comparing myself to anybody, I'm just giving thanks for this gift that I have in this moment. I think our happiness strengthens our life which ends up looking like the qualities of resilience and perseverance and they end up bringing a flourishing presence to this world. That's where I think the psalmist says your your happiness is my strength. And as we cultivate it, as we nurture it, joy, gladness, happiness, we bring this resilience and perseverance which ends up adding something to this world, which ends up adding something to where we exist, to where we work, to the people we relate to, to the people that we're in families with, to the people that we're in friendships with. I think our happiness is connected to our willingness to entrust our lives to God's loving care and provision and to trust God with our lives so that we live without fear and anxiousness. Now that's a tough one for a lot of folks, I get that. We have a lot of folks who struggle with anxiety. We have a lot of folks who struggle with stress. And living with this willingness to entrust our lives to God's loving care and provision is a stretch and we lean into it. But the payoff is as I do that, it builds within me this deep sense of gratitude, of gladness and joy and happiness because I know God is going to provide and God is going to care. You know, Jesus talks about, look at the sparrows of the field. They, well, they don't worry about what they're going to eat, where they're going to live. God takes care of them. And then He says, will not God take care of you and I in the same way? So don't worry about tomorrow, Jesus says, because what? Today has enough trouble of its own. It doesn't say you won't have trouble. He says if you're going to focus on something, focus on the present. And in this present, God provides. And how can we trust that God will give us what we need? and not get carried away in our anxiousness. And then I think our happiness is connected to our willingness to offer kindness and generosity to others, especially those in need. And I think that's a big plus. And I think that's a big key. The more I live outside of myself, the more I live beyond myself, the more I give myself to others, I have found, quite honestly, the more happy I feel. The more joyful I feel. The, the, the more um, glad I I feel. It's when I begin to turn in on myself and I begin to live for only myself. And I'm again worried about all of these pieces of life. Who am I comparing myself to? Nurturing my insecurities. Wondering about how I can get back at this person in the conflict. You know, so on and so forth. All of this, when I do that, that's when the happiness and the joy and the gladness seems to dissipate. And somehow my energy drains and there is no strength. So how can I find ways to give back? How can I find ways to help those in need? How can I find ways to serve others? Now you may wrestle with this passage yourself and find something different. I don't know. I would encourage you to do that. Just don't don't take what I say. Wrestle with it. But most of all, wrestle with this. There is something about the kingdom of God and about what Scripture and the narrative Scripture that tells us that gladness and joy and happiness is a distinct possibility. Not superficial, but yet something that is a very distinct possibility as we live in relationship and trust with God. Now, here's my final comment on this. As I wrestled with this some more, I discovered maybe my answer, my answer uh, in a novel that I'm reading. And the novel is entitled Little Faith by Nicholas Butler. And it's an interesting novel, it's about a couple named Lyle and Peg, they're an elderly couple that live in Redford, Wisconsin, and they're struggling with a strained relationship with their adult daughter named Shiloh. They love their grandson Isaac and they're afraid that the strained relationship is going to jeopardize the relationship with their grandson. And not only that, but their daughter is also dating a pastor, which would make anybody worry, i got to tell you that right now. But in the context of the story, Lyle The grandfather, he's struggling with his faith. He doesn't know whether to believe in God or not. He doesn't know whether God exists or not. He doesn't even know how God shows up in this world. And he's also struggling with the fact that his dear friend Hoot, H-O-O-T, who he has known since elementary school, is dying with cancer and only has a few months to live. And so Lyle is out in his garage building what's called a harvest table. And Lyle tells in the story this harvest table is what his dad would build when they were young kids. They'd be out baling hay and when everything was done they'd build this big table, set it up in the field and they'd just eat from the harvest and just have this big celebration out there in the field. And so he's building this harvest table because his friend Hoot says, I want one more thing before I die. He says, I've never really had a family. He says, I want you and Peg and Shiloh and he says her crazy boyfriend preacher And Isaac and some other people want them to dress up and I want us to have either a Thanksgiving or a Christmas dinner. I don't care what it is, Hoot says, because I'm not going to be around for either, but I just want to get together with people and have this meal. And so we picked the story up, just a couple paragraphs, with Lyle building this table. Lyle shook his head. We had one like this that is a table when I was a boy, he shrugged. They're called harvest tables. At the end of the season when the crops had been harvested, my dad and his brothers used to haul a table like this out in the field and would have a big dinner. And Lyle's out in the garage talking to his wife Peg and she says, you never told me that before. Well, Lyle says, one of my best memories was my dad after baling the last of the year's hay. It was very late, late August, I think maybe even early September, it was dusty. We're all out in the fields throwing bales into the wagon. It was too hot to wear a shirt. And I remember that all of us out there beneath the sun sunburned, and we're working together. And my mother kept bringing us ice water with slices of lemon, and how wonderful that water tasted. And looking out over the field, there were my uncles and cousins, and they were singing. And, and and before we know it, it was late afternoon, and my father said, "Well, let's go for a swim, boys." And then he took off all his clothes except for his underwear, and I never seen him like that before. You know, never seen his stomach, for example, really his knees even. And then he ran toward the creek, and I remember him diving in, and we were all just so stunned, so surprised because we'd never seen him like that, so happy. And we all followed him into the creek, and we were splashing each other, and our mother was watching us from the bank, and she was just laughing her head off. I can see him now, Lyle said, at the harvest table after we'd gone swimming. One of my uncles had bought out a cooler of cold beer, and the adults were drinking, even my mom. And then we had a picnic out there in the field, nothing special, corn on the cob, bratwurst, potato salad, and pickles. And I suppose we were poor, he says, but I don't remember it like that. I was just happy. And I thought about that last night as I read at 12 o'clock night. And I wrote this down because this is what I took away from it. Maybe happiness is less a consumer item, a happy meal. You ever notice Never call it a blessing meal or a gladness meal? It's always a happy meal. Maybe happiness is less a consumer item. And maybe it's more than a method to build a successful and attractive life. Maybe it's more this. It's a moment to simply build on rather than to capture and hold. A moment of grace which will be held in our hearts as a memory that will come back to us when we most need it and remind us that happiness can exist in our world because it's happened before. You know, Victor Frankl, who suffered through uh, concentration camps in World War II, psychiatrist, and came out of that and wrote one of the most profound books, Man's Search for Meaning, said, happiness cannot be pursued. It can only ensue, E-N-S-U-E. You cannot pursue happiness. It just comes to us in a moment of grace, in a moment as a gift. So what I'm saying is this. Is happiness real? I think it is. Can we make it happen? I don't know. I think if we do it's not going to last very long. But does it come to us as a gift? Yes it does. And don't be guilty when it happens and I promise to you I won't be guilty when those moments of happiness come because we need it. Our soul survives on it and it gets us through the next moment and the next moment and the next moment and it reminds us that God is present and that God is real and that God is active in this world. For me, that is the spirituality of happiness. And it can happen. And I believe it happened to many of you at one point or another. But maybe somewhere along the line, we've decided to just no longer let it exist. we decided to have amnesia about it. Or we've decided there's too, other, too many other big concerns in this world to go back to that moment. I would say don't do that. Those concerns are always going to be with us. Those concerns are always going to be here and you'll always have time to address them. But whatever you do, don't let go of those memories of happiness because they will and do get us through.